Today on The Bible Archives, we are going to look at something that we've been exploring pretty intentionally for the last several weeks, and that is Eucharist, or some people call it Communion, or the Lord's Supper, or Mass. And particularly, we're hoping to, you know, Eucharist isn't something that nobody has ever experienced before. A lot of people, especially if you're in the Christian tradition, you have been around Eucharist, Communion, Lord's Supper, Mass, whatever you call it. So the idea of re-encountering Eucharist is the way we want to frame this, because most people would say that this sacrament, it's very important, but if you were to ask most people, they I'm guessing, they wouldn't be able to tell you why. And this is this is a general problem within Christianity, especially modern Christianity is what's called the curse of knowledge, right? where we become so familiar with something that it starts to become unfamiliar. And so we stop really understanding that thing and we just do it in this very static fashion. And uh, that's part of the reason why we want to continue to explore the Bible and theology, because there is so much that has been left uncovered. And, and we hope to be able to bring that out for, for ourselves and for anyone who is willing to endure this. But with Eucharist, we have a theological, but also ritual, ethical practice that is central to the church that I think has lost some meaning. So what is Eucharist? And why should the Eucharist as a sacrament be important and is there, is there something in this that's not just a strange religious ritual, but is actually something that's beneficial for being a human being? That, that's, that's what I hope to explore here. Um, so the first account that we see with Eucharist, as far as um, chronology of the text, uh, happens in 1 Corinthians. So most people would say, well, no, it first shows up in the Gospels. Well, if we're going by when the stuff was written down. Uh, first Corinthians is our first episode where we see this brought up. And I find it interesting because the way that it's brought up is that there's problems with it. That the same thing we just said, like not fully understanding what's going on, not interacting with it in a healthy way, the same problem that I think exists within the modern church was going on with the very first instance this sacrament comes up. So I have a question for you about that, Tyler. We know that the people in, in Corinth were largely Gentile in that congregation, and I'm wondering if they weren't misunderstanding the communion because of their own understanding of some of the pagan rituals that were very similar in some ways. Um, we know that on a lot of the goddess cultures, for example, there were rounds of bread that would be made, and they would stamp the figure of the goddess on this, and this would go back five, six, seven thousand years. Um, some of the early goddess cultures go back as far as eight to ten thousand as far as archaeology can tell. So you may have people with a certain mindset. Now they're trying to understand it in a different way and they may, do you think, be confused by that? Yeah, the problem's that it's there's a similarity 
with modern Christians and the Corinthians in that there's a limited interaction with this sacrament. The problems, though, I, I do think are different. I okay. think a lot of the issues today uh, surround um, the the theological interaction with the the sacrament um, and the the methods of the sacrament. A lot of these issues are not in the text, right? Like who can take communion and how should it be served? Th- those questions aren't really there. We also aren't having the issues of confusing bread and wine or bread and juice uh, with pagan symbols that our neighbors at the market are doing. Right? <laughs> this, this is true. I was thinking, though, with Paul, his thinking as a Jewish man would be more about the Passover, and Gentiles might not be thinking of it quite in that same way. Right. So there is, there is one frame with 1 Corinthians where Paul seems to be confronting some of these things. Yeah. And this brings up the issue of sacramentality um, because the idea of connecting with your God and using a ritual to do so is not a new idea that Christians came up with. It's not a new idea that Jewish people came up with. Right. Right. I, I think sometimes we go, I think, first of all, we go, Jesus was brilliant because like on that night he came up with this thing. It seems like on the spot or maybe he planned it a little bit, but man, where did he come up with this idea? Well, he's using an idea or a frame of reference that's common. And the Jewish people too, when they, when they come up with Passover and they have a lot of interactions with food as ways to have religious meaning that's not a new idea. So they're using right. the constructs of human consciousness as it exists. They do change it, right? They add, they add their own version to a common thing. So uh, to have, to have a, a, a culture who are using very tactile things to express ritualistic importance is not, um, it, it's not unfounded. That, that's all over the place. Right. How the Jewish people and how the Christian people do that is supposed to be different. So yeah, in 1 Corinthians, you're probably having some confusion. Um, uh, it feel, probably feels like mixed symbols. Mm-hmm. Which one is this? And this is not just a problem with Eucharist. This is a problem in Leviticus. This is a problem um, in the early church in general with all of these Gentiles of trying to figure out um, how do we, how do we still make them part of the Jewish faith, but also allow them to be themselves? But then, which things do we tell them they can't do anymore because it doesn't really work? Uh, th- this is a huge problem, and this doesn't stop a- in First Corinthians or the text at all. This continues to go throughout Christian history yeah. of trying to figure out how do we how do we allow a a variety of cultures to interact with this particular version of faith. And is Christianity a culture or is it something that can transcend and include multiple cultures? And if so, how do you do that? So this is still Mm -hmm. a debate that happens, but we can find that within Eucharist. The other thing you have happening in 1 Corinthians is an ethical problem. Right, okay. So what I'd like to do uh, to, to kind of scan the horizon of Eucharist is let's start from like the big overarching conception of it uh, and then we'll take we'll take some different time to uh, break down different pieces of Eucharist and communion in ways that it's understood and then we'll end by 
coming back to First Corinthians um, and seeing what's going on there and why should we take that seriously. And my opinion is that the interaction in First Corinthians should be first and foremost how we prioritize our approach to Eucharist. Right? We get caught up in all sorts of big theological words um, and 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 different perspectives on how it's done and the ritual of it. First Corinthians, I think, is ethical in nature. And, uh, you know, whatever debates we want to have on transubstantiation versus consubstantiation, any of that stuff, um, that should be secondary to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, if, especially if 1 Corinthians is our first interaction with Eucharist as we know it. Sure. So what is Eucharist? Um, Next episode, we will actually get into uh, the direct components of Eucharist. But first I want to, I want to zoom out because in the Christian tradition, Eucharist is named as a sacrament. Now, depending on what tradition you're from, will dictate how you understand what a sacrament is specifically, right? So the Catholic tradition has more sacraments than most Protestant traditions. So we need to get into that a little bit, like what makes Eucharist a sacrament But I do think it's important to start with what is a sacrament and therefore why would Eucharist be one? Okay, so uh, the idea of sacrament, it's that word's not really in the text. Okay. The idea is, you know, similar to Trinity, like Trinity's not, that word's not in there, but you can, you've come up with the idea. So the first interaction you see with sacrament is actually uh, Latin. The word is sacramentum, which literally just means to set apart. You could also translate that as to make holy. The Greek word for sacrament is mysterion, which, I mean, just that's an easy one, deals with mystery. So taking these two these two uh, languages and putting them together, you, you kind of get this picture that a sacrament is where the divine and human mystery meet. Okay, there's, there's something transcendent, but also imminent. There is uh, something of a connection with mystery that also makes that moment sacred. Okay. What this means then, and I'm trying, I'm trying to get back to a, a more foundational understanding of the word, because again, the curse of knowledge. Sacrament is thrown around, and do we actually consider what it is? So a sacrament being where it's this reality, we can explore that while allowing it to remain beyond our human finitude. Now, this brings up a couple necessary points. The first being that a sacrament then has to be initiated by a divine entity, right? So God has to initiate it. The mystery has to be disclosed by uh, the source of that transcendence. You know, we can't initiate it. Yet, it also means that the human component is really necessary. So, I, I know you've brought up, Amy, that a ritual only works if it's a collaboration between uh, divine and human. Right. So, that part of the definition is, is, is necessary where divine and human mystery meet. So, it has to be initiated by divine um, but it requires the participation of the human. Um, and you've brought up how the human component 
is selective in that it, because we're going to get into how um, Eucharist deals with all of creation, um, all created things, all materiality. Um, but those other things, the plants, the animals, etc., they're not actually participating in the ritual. They are um, receiving the effects of the ritual, maybe you could say. That would be a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because only human beings have the kind of symbolic mind that can understand how you can have a tactile object, for example, bread and wine or juice, and then have that be a way of connecting with the divine nature. So it's kind of like, because we have that symbolic mind, we can interact with what is divine in every event that we do. So almost every event that we do is kind of a, of a sacrament, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and if you're talking about sacrament being where divine and human mystery meet, your mind mm-hmm. should immediately go to, well, why do specific rituals have to be that? Sure. Right? So if a sacrament is where we are confronted by a divine presence, right, and we, we would articulate these moments in all sorts of different ways, right? You see a particular sunset um, or a, a beautiful transcendent moment. Well, yeah, that, that's sort of meeting the definition here. Um, but a part that we don't often... Uh, consider much is that we're also confronted with a certain absence of what our minds are incapable of fully seeing so what you're saying is like our consciousness Mm -hmm. is able to recognize that there is something beyond us even though we can't understand it and that that's a really profound picture but that's kind of what's going on in sacraments right In, in the sacraments we are brought into the mystery of god and it's a relational event and it encompasses whatever words are being used or objects are being used, the spaces where we are. But the intention of a sacrament is that we do them in order to encounter that mystery. And, and this is the part that I think is important, and allow it to redefine, redefine how we interact now with the world. And this this is something that, you know, different cultures but christianity being one of them kind of kind of gets attacked for is how symbolic it is but this is all over the place without throughout human history we're we're very symbolic right we use tactile objects in order to help us mediate mystery sure and and this goes back to what we were saying the christians and even the jewish uh, the ancient jewish people they didn't come up with this idea of mediating mystery by using uh, regular things or parts of creation or parts of human experience, this is absolutely normal. I mean, you can look at uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. if we want to use right. one of the oldest uh, literary pieces that have been found, you see it within that. A lot of Israel's neighbors, if you're reading the uh, Hebrew scriptures, they're doing these kinds of rituals where they're trying to mediate mystery encounter the divine, recognize absence, recognize their human finitude, and interact with that mystery in a way that helps them redefine who they are and where they are and what they're doing. So these things are very, are very normal. I would say that this is what makes us human, is the desire to meet with the divine in this way. We know that going back as far as Katolchiyuk, uh, which is one of the very earliest human settlements in Anatolia, which goes back seven, eight, 
maybe even 10,000 years where they find these goddess figurines and they find these shrines. And I think that that's something that defines us and separates us. If anything does, what would separate us from the animals is that explicit need to have these sacraments to meet the divine in some way that we can understand it. I mean, you could even use the Tower of Babel as an example of the desire to uh, interact with transcendence. Yes. Now, whether or not that desire plays out positively and healthily is a question for debate. So again, the issue for the Jewish people with things like Passover, I mean, with most of Torah, the Christians with Eucharist and and baptism and the other things that ritualistically happen within church tradition, the issue isn't um, whether or not a ritual practice that engages with mystery is useful. It's how you do it is important. So one of the first things that the Jewish people are known for within Torah is we don't have images, right? We're not going to make idols. And you can make a case sacramentally that an idol is not a good way to interact with mystery Mm -hmm. because it confines it. So the Jewish people say, we're not going to do that. We want to leave room for this absence of unknowing of the divine. So, but we have to see that the engagement with sacramental uh, ideas is a human one. Right. And we need to do this almost as an expression of our complex consciousness as human beings. Yeah. And Eucharist fits into this. And, and, and so in Eucharist, you have these various uh, symbols. And, and yes, I know there are issues with using the word symbol uh, when talking specifically about the elements of, of Eucharist and communion. But just generally, you're using objects in order to mediate reality. And that has the ability to form human beings, however you do that. And I think that's why the early uh, religious traditions that we know of all took that seriously. And that's why some said, we don't do it like them because we think they're wrong. So you have this sort of separation that happens. Now, one, another thing I want to emphasize about sacrament is that it is a relational event. Right? So if this is a gift initiated by the divine... Mystery involves recognizing that the divine is present among us. So there is that understanding of transcendence, that you're accepting something is beyond you. And yet, if you're sacramental, you're also recognizing that that presence is real in your midst. And this is, this is common language within Christianity, and that's why I'm using words like transcendence and imminence to try to get us to reconsider what that means. Uh, Christians are very good at saying, you know, I really felt the presence of God or uh, God is dwelling among us. Yeah, that's called imminence. And I, for me, it's really important that transcendence and imminence work together. Um, and I think sacrament does a great job in interacting with that mystery of somehow there's a transcendent being that's also present. That's kind of what's going on. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that we, we know that we have somewhat of a divine nature Um, And yet there is this transcendent idea that's hard for us to grasp. And so you could almost say that doing things like communion is our way of breaking through that boundary um, because we are literally taking that divine being into us or we symbolically or literally, depending on how you see it. Um, But it's like it, it breaks down that barrier so that then we can we can interact with that divine in a 
in a closer way, in a more relational way. Maybe we, as humans, we need to do that mm-hmm. to feel that concrete way of connecting to God and saying, "You are a part of me. I am a part of you." The whole thing and part of the community. Right. So you have transcendence. You have imminence. You have this relational uh, connection of the divine and the human, while also maintaining this mystery. Um, because even when you say uh, you take communion and you're interacting with that presence, you're not interacting or you shouldn't be claiming that you're interacting with that full presence. There's still this unknowingness to it, but there's something sacramentally powerful that God doesn't show up. We simply become aware of the presence that is already there and already with us. All right. So that's what's going on with sacrament. It's this human and divine interaction with mystery. But why are certain specific things called sacraments? And here's where we need to start making a distinction between sacraments with a capital S and sacraments with a lowercase s. Because if all of this is true about mystery and sacraments, we could say, aren't a lot of things sacramental? Everything is sacramental, or everything has the potential to be sacramental. So what we just did was we we just took this definition of sacrament and we made it really broad. And now we have the problem of, well, then why do we only call specific things sacraments? Because everywhere you look, you can see this mystery enmeshing with our reality, if you so choose to look. However, there are specific means by which this mystery is carried out most clearly and consistently among communities. And that's, that's a helpful way to start breaking down the definition of why there are certain sacraments. Okay. Now, I come from uh, the Protestant tradition, generally, um, though I have a lot of experience within Catholicism. I do understand at this point there may be a divide that uh, I'm not going to talk about all seven sacraments and why they are sacraments. And and honestly, the way that we're about to explain this reveals that I kind of take the side of there being two. <laughs> um, but I, d- don't get caught up in that, okay? Our, our goal right now is to figure out there's lowercase s sacrament sacramentality, divine and human mystery, enmeshing in reality, then you have capitalist sacraments. The basic way to understand this is that capital S sacraments are those which were instituted and ordained in promises Jesus gives through visible signs or elements. It's a unnecessarily uh, complicated definition, I think. Uh, John Wesley of the Methodist uh, tradition articulated as outward and visible signs of an inward grace. Um, and I'm pretty sure Luther Luther used that as well. But there's specific acts that carry particular meaning because they were commanded, first of all. Um, and not only were they commanded, but they were made accessible and obvious within the church. So they were instituted. Okay. So ordain, and, and, and one of the examples that I use sometimes with people is that uh, Jesus ordains lots of things, washing each other's feet, but that was not instituted. So it's not a sacrament. That's an ordinance, 
right? And, and so these start getting broken down. And this is where um, in, in the, the Protestant tradition, you know, marriage is still a, an, an ordinance. It's still a very important thing. It's not a sacrament, though. Confession um, is, is still a ritual that is performed, but it's not given the elevation of sacrament. Now, wherever you lean on that, I honestly, I don't care. The, the important component of this is that you have, you have selective things that have been commanded within the narrative of, of Scripture and instituted within the narrative of church history. And by entering the story carried out in those specific acts, you have a real, symbolic, meaningful way to encounter mystery. So this goes back to the goal of sacramentality is to interact with the human and divine mystery. Well, we have specific sacraments that allow us to do that more clearly. And if for no other reason than the fact that a plethora of people over centuries of time have done these same acts, that makes it worth doing. And that makes it worth giving these specific acts uh, an elevated place. But I'm with John Wesley on this one. He said that the sacraments are not essential, or you could say it, the sacraments are not required. And if we take that to be true, which you could definitely argue with that, um, that means that the capital S sacraments do not exist first and foremost for themselves. They're pointing to something else. And I would say that we experience mystery and this divine human interaction within reality through a specific thing that has been practiced and instituted and commanded for centuries in order to accomplish something else. Now, this, was, this is going to be the larger argument for communion as a whole. You know, communion, in that moment, it's doing something to you, but it's doing something to you for something else, right? The goal is not just to take communion and you're done. It's implicating something. And I would say, as we're talking about sacrament, what you have is something that has been agreed upon, for centuries by people mm-hmm. that, that, who have said this works. Uh, th- this has memory to it, sacred memory to it. This has shared history to it. That, that makes those symbols and those actions and that ritual elevated in importance because in it, if we do this together consistently over time, it's going to help us to see the sacramentality of everything. I would almost say it's kind of like if you've ever learned a new word, say, or you're looking for a car, and suddenly you see them everywhere. So it's like it's a way of pointing it out to you. Now you can see it. Would you say that that's a good analogy to what goes on here? Yeah. You know, and part of it's like learning from your parents. You know, you... You want to be able to do something, and you allow the the generations that have come before you to go, we're going to set this up so it's easier for you to see that. So with sacraments, the, the importance is for the divine and the human mystery to come together. And that should be happening all the time. Remember, we said everything has the potential right. to be sacramental. That doesn't mean it's always just going to happen. You have to predispose yourself so that it happens. How do you do that? You participate in a ritual that has been fine-tuned 
and uh, made memorable and significant for generations past you so that it, it primes you to be able to interact with the whole world in a specific way. I would say that's the goal. I think, I think that's partly why, you know, John Wesley says they're not essential because you could accomplish the end goal embracing mystery within all of reality, your finitude and God's transcendence while experiencing God's imminence. Mm -hmm. You could experience that without the sacrament technically. Sure. The sacrament makes it much easier for you to do that all of the time. And, and one thing that's going to come up again and again with Eucharist is I do think that it's largely, I, I, I'm under the opinion that it is vastly connected to Passover. I'm also under the impression that it is interacting with Leviticus a lot. And a lot of Christians look at Leviticus, and, and this just means we're going to have to walk through Leviticus. Mm -hmm. Look at Leviticus as, oh, Jesus did away with that because Jesus is the, the sacrifice. And it's like, oh, did you read Leviticus? Because that's not what's going on there. And one particular image that's going to come up again is uh, the tent of meeting in Leviticus, where the offerings would happen. What you experience there is meant to inform how you're going to experience reality everywhere else. You don't come to the tent of meeting and then you're done. It's you come to the tent of meeting and it starts something and it redefines how you see the world so that you can go and take that out into everything else, especially ordinary spaces, right? So the sacrament, the, the making holy, making sacred, setting apart somewhere allows you to take that sacredness and, and and have it radiate out into the mundane okay and mm -hmm. and i think that's the same thing that we're experiencing in communion you come in and experience this uh very physical tactile but also meaningful ritual alongside of a bunch of other people not just in the present but also historically so that you can go make that reality you just experienced more real wherever you go next I think that's that's what we're talking about, the difference between capital S sacrament and lowercase s sacrament. The hope is that specific sacraments will open us up to see the mystery everywhere we look and, and to use the space of a meal in general to carry that sacramental meaning is really profound because if communion or Eucharist is a meal and then you go home and you have a meal, the hope is that you'll now interact with that meal a little bit more like you just did with the meal you just took in whatever supposedly sacred space that you were. So, I mean, I, I think about this too, Amy, that people get so caught up in going, and I'm one of them, of the problem of saying certain spaces are sacred is that we then say other spaces are not. Yeah. And But there is something about going certain spaces are more obviously sacred so that you can go and see the sacredness of everywhere else. You know what I mean? I do. And I think that there's a, a point to having sacred spaces in the sense that it starts to frame your mind to get ready to do that. It's like you were talking about before. When you are in a certain space and you say certain things, that puts your mind in that space of understanding it or opening up more for that experience. Yeah, like the, the Catholics get taken to the woodshed on how um, explicit and uh, exclusionary they are with Eucharist. And I understand some of the criticisms. I, I do, and I have them myself. 
but I gotta respect the uh, holiness, the the mysteriousness that they're allowing to exist in that space. Now, if they leave it there, and, and it remains exclusive, right, and it remains static, you know, mm-hmm. behind the altar, uh, then I think they failed. But at the same time, if you go, you know, we don't even we don't even need this uh, ritualistic. Uh, sacred space making performance yeah you can that can happen technically but it's kind of like traveling without a gps yeah you can get there uh but the gps is going to be helpful you know to to make your trip a little bit easier i think and the thing is is a lot of cultures understand this idea of making a sacred space we talk about how the architecture of a building can inform how it's used, but then what we're going to use it for also informs how we make it. So it's like you can have temples, you can create a sacred space within a grove of trees, but depends upon yeah. how you interact with that then, um, is again, is putting your mind in the space of doing it. By separating it out, you're now saying, this space is in this moment for this particular purpose, and it puts you again, more open to the idea. Well, well, and even what you're saying, and that can be anything. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You have to figure out now how how you're going to mesh the capital S with Uh the lowercase s. Yeah. And if you want to say that you're at your dinner table at home and you have this drink and some food and you're going to do communion with your friends, yeah, you can make a case for that. However... You also got to take into account a few thousand years of uh, Jewish and Christian tradition that's saying like, hey, this might mediate it better. Yeah. But on uh, the critique is worth having that we don't have to say that only certain things can be sacred. Absolutely. You know, it can be that sacred grove of trees as much as the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And both of them are fine because neither of them are essential. So yeah. if you get caught up in going... No, it has to be done exactly like this. Well, now we're bordering superstition, mm-hmm. and we need to be careful of that. And there's a lot of prophetic critiques about how Israel would uh, come oh. under that failure as well, you know? Sure, because you had some people who said, no, it has to be at the temple. Other people said, no, it can be, temples can be any, well, not anywhere, but they had places that were away from Jerusalem. I want to point right. that out. There was the temple at Jerusalem, or you could have your temples that were in their own local areas. Yeah, and, and there's and, some argument about and that. And I don't, I don't, here, here's what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to be Switzerland in the midst of this, <laughs> yeah. of the people who go... No, the capital S sacrament, and it's got to be confined into this restricted use. And people who go, we don't even need capital S sacraments. You know, we can find God on the golf course. Yeah, yeah. Both are actually right. But you can make a case for both. What I'm asking everyone to do as we're, you know, priming the pump to jump into Eucharist is to go, how can we utilize both? Right. Because the end goal does seem... To make it so that you can encounter a transcendent who is also imminent in every aspect of life. But also taking into account that thousands of years of human beings have said, and this is a great way to mediate it. Mm -hmm. should probably honor that. Yeah. Um, Now, if you make that static, that's dangerous. If you ignore it completely, that's also dangerous. You know, the balance is in the middle there. And, and I do think, therefore, it's necessary to have Eucharist. 
And I also think that it's necessary to see that Eucharist is pointing us that if we encounter it properly, it has the potential to change the very fabric of our lives. Right? All humans are stumbling within the mystery of life. And so this has something to show all of us. And I would even say this, Amy, Christian or not, right? If, if you can take somebody who I'm not even going to adhere to all of these other things, but you, you mean you've created a space for me to encounter divine uh, oh, yeah. mystery? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's still beneficial for you because if that then frames how you go out and begin living, mm-hmm. I would say that's, that's quite sacramental. Right. Right. But if we take this sacramental act seriously, it, it has the potential again, the potential to rewire our identities in a way that just might make the world we desire a reality. So, Eucharist as a sacrament. I think that's important. Now we need to figure out what Eucharist should be leading to. What is the effect it should have if we do the meal properly?